Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 3, Episode I, Never Buy the Pig in the Poke. It's an odd title this week. Odd, that is, until you look in your pockets. A pocket you'll notice straight away is basically just a small bag. A poke, therefore, is a normal-sized bag. So if you tell someone never to buy the pig in the poke, then you're telling them always to look in the bag, empty it out, see what you're buying. The stuff that's still hidden away in a bag before you can buy it, that's hidden away for a reason you should avoid it, at least when you're buying pigs. It's a fine bit of advice from the farm. Well, this week we're going to go down to the farm. Probably not the farm where the pig and the poke came from. That was a a late medieval European farm. We're going to go to an ancient Indian farm. More specifically, a farm during the Gupta era. It's the third in our three special episodes on food during the time of the Guptas. And a trip down to an ancient Indian farm seems like just the thing to get the soul right. Here's a description, not actually of a Gupta farm, but of a farm down in South India. It starts in the forest, then we're going to approach the farm. In the deep forest, where lotuses raise their heavy heads above the marsh, encircled with fields of sugarcane, the travellers could hear a distant clamour, as if the armies of two rival kings were fighting. This uproar was made by the shrilling of insects and the cries of waterfowl. Shrieking cranes, red-footed geese and green-footed herons, flying birds, water birds of many kinds. In the damp fallow lands, buffalo ran wild, their scanty hair plastered with mud, their eyes red. They rubbed their backs against the stacks to break the long straw so that the grain would fall. The broken ears of rice resembled fly whisks made of the hair of the river's grey yaks. Field labourers, their arms blackened by exposure to the sun, came running with the farm owners. Their shouts could be heard from a distance. The travellers could also hear the melodies of women singing in drunken voices. Their broad shoulders and large breasts were soiled with mud. Having cast away the flowers from their hair, they were sticking the tender sprouts of rice into the water-soaked ground. These graceful women looked like bronze statues sprung from the mire of the fields. And then the hymns sung by the ploughmen were heard. They walked behind their sharp ploughs, which ripped open the soil. From afar, the travellers could hear the farmers' threshing songs, as their bullock trampled the harvest to separate the grain from the straw. And they could hear cheers of those who were listening to the mud-soiled drums played by vigorous young minstrels. Sounds absolutely majestic, doesn't it? That's from the ancient poem called The Anklet Bracelet. We've looked at that in a much earlier episode, in fact, in last season. What we're going to do this episode is find out if life on an ancient Indian farm was really as majestic as that, or if it was rather bleak. We're going to, in fact, go and buy and run our very own ancient Indian farm, in a podcast form, of course. And we are most definitely going to take this pig out of the poke before we do it. Here's the plan. First, we're going to find out how to buy land for ourselves to farm on, and we're going to look at some alternatives if buying land doesn't work out. Then we'll look at the various legal risks and responsibilities of owning a farm. And finally, when we've read all the small print, we've heard all the warnings, we'll get down to a bit of ancient Indian farming ourselves. 
So, with the mud squelched between your toes and your hands wrapped around the hoe, let's get going. Our first job is to go and buy some land. And that's not going to be so easy, because land is getting in quite short supply during the Gupta period, or at least good land is. It's not just a matter of turning up and taking a nice bit of land no one's taken yet, because all of the good land, all of the fertile land near the settlements, all of that's already being used up for farming. Increasingly, grants of land are being made into the wasteland far beyond civilization. These sorts of grants, the land there, it's tough. It's difficult to cultivate, and once you've cultivated, it's a long way to take the goods from your farm into market. This is not going to be easy. But actually, buying land doesn't start going out and looking in the jungle. It starts in the nearest town. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last few episodes, a certain Chinese monk has been shadowing us. And he keeps on getting it wrong. In the episode we had on food in the Gupta era, the monk told us everyone in India is a vegetarian. Wrong. He told us everyone uh, abstains from alcohol. Wrong. Well, that monk is back in this episode. And today, in the very same passage, he tells us that the everyday folk never have to go and see the magistrate. They're never bothered by the laws of the state. They just live their lives freely. Friends, We should not be listening to this chap's advice. If we want to buy some land, we'll be needing to spend quite a bit of time in the magistrate's office. Now, historians don't actually have a single record of a purchase of a farm for a private citizen. But they do have tons and tons of information about purchasing land for religious orders. Probably they have the info for religious orders because... Buying land for that purpose is required just a bit more paperwork. There were tax breaks to arrange if you were buying for a religious order, and the state had to authorise them. Still, buying for religious orders is what we know, and presumably buying land for private purposes was pretty similar. So looking at the religious purchase will give us a clue about what to expect when we're buying our own farm. First off, we should go with our spouse to the main town of the district. And then we're going to go and talk to the district officer. And then after that, we're going to arrange a meeting of the local council. Uh, That's a council headed by the guild president of merchants in the local area. We can go and see them. And we're going to ask them if we can buy land near a certain village. And we're going to say what price we're going to pay for it. Now, the price seems to have been fairly stable. At least in one region and at one time, there was an agreed upon price for each different kind of land. Suppose we want to buy, say, an acre. Well, if that acre is in wasteland, then it's going to cost us, say, two gold coins. If that acre is an uncultivated land, so pasture, it's going to cost us three gold coins. If it's already cultivated, it's going to cost us four gold coins. Now, those prices would have changed a little bit with the movements of the times. For example, when the Huns invaded, everyone in the Gupta Empire fled to the east, Land price in the East would have been higher because of the extra demand. But roughly they're going to be about that level. It's not like today where every different plot of land costs a different amount, it seems. If we could find a suitable chunk of land near the village we want, well, the council will then consult the record keeper. The record keeper will consult with any current owner of the land, and if everything is in order, 
then we pay the price. We hand over our gold coins. But the land isn't ours yet. The local council will go out to the site itself. They'll go and work out the exact boundaries of the land we've, we've, we've bought. They'll use a standard measuring rod for the purpose. And they'll mark it down very carefully where the border is. This is all to avoid future disputes. Then the ruling council will go into the village where the land is attached, and they'll summon the headman, they'll summon all the respectable householders and all the royal officers, and then they'll announce the sale to everyone. Finally, when all of this is done, they hand us a document. Now, this is the deed for the land. If it were a religious purchase, if we were buying this in perpetuity for some monks or some Brahmins, well then, the, the deed would probably be in copper. But because we're just normal farmers, the deed will probably be in something more perishable, like palm leaf. It will be sealed with the mark of the court of our district. This is a vital document to keep hold of. Finally, it means, the land is ours. But what if we can't find a bit of land we want? Maybe there's none available, or maybe we just don't have any gold coins to hand. I suppose we could go and rob a bank, although banks aren't going to really exist for a millennia or more, so that's going to be quite a wait. And in any case, there are other options available to us, options that keep us within the law and within ancient India. One legal option is to find some fallow land, land that has been cultivated but actually isn't being worked at the moment. Maybe the owner has gone travelling, maybe the owner's ill, maybe the owner's just lazy. No matter, we can begin to work on the land. No one is allowed to stop us. Now, there is a risk to this strategy. This isn't our farm just because we're working it. If the owner comes back, he gets to claim it from us. We have to abandon the farm at that point and he can carry on the work. But the owner will have to pay us for all the work we've done on the land. This law is written to ensure that the fallow land in India all gets worked. So choosing to work some fallow fields, that's not going to be a waste of our time. If we're really lucky, though, the owner won't come back for a long time. If he doesn't come back and stop us for 30 years, then he's not allowed to come back and stop us at all. We've gained the right to work the land, unless the owner is a friend or a relative, in which case the legal courts will just say we were doing a favour to him. Nice. So if we've earned the right to work the land and we keep farming it and farming it and we pass it on to our children and they pass it on to their children and they pass it on to their children so that the land's been farmed by our, our family for four generations, then finally it will be legally our farm. Four generations, not as long as waiting to rob a bank, but not exactly a quick route to owning land. Suppose, though, you don't want to wait four generations to have a farm. And suppose you haven't got money enough to buy your own. Well, then, then your only option, really, is to work on someone else's farm. Now, the vast majority of farms in ancient India were small things. Enough to keep a decent-sized family on, nothing more. And actually, that's for the same reason that French farms historically were small. There were rules requiring you to split your inheritance between your children. You couldn't just give all that you own to one child, and that meant that if a farmer ever got enough money to make a large farm, well, it didn't stay a large farm for long, it had to split up between the kids. You do hear about bigger farms from time to time in ancient India, 
Their stories of farms up to a thousand acres or so in Magda, near our city of Patliputra. Now these farms, they would have a single owner, but he would divide it up. He might employ some sharecroppers. These are guys who worked the land and promised uh, the, the owner a portion of the product. Or he might work himself and just employ some agricultural labourers. The agricultural labourers would get around 10% of the produce, according to one law book. Other law books say 20%, a third. It's a moderate pay. It's, it's not too bad. It's, it's not as much as a soldier, but it's not as little as, say, a baggage porter. And we've got an old Buddhist tale about exactly one such farm. It was a farm that was just to the east of Rajagriha. That's the old capital of Magda. It's not too far from Nalanda, that university we looked at a few episodes ago. And there, the owner worked the fields himself with a bunch of hired men. Now, one day he was working in the field and he went to wash his face at the pool by the field's edge. He dipped his, his face in and, and he saw this beautiful crab in the pool. And as he dipped his face in the water, the crab came up to him, just as curious about him as he was about the crab. So he put his hand forward and the crab climbed on. And he nestled the crab in his clothing. And it perched there as he went about working in the field, the crab watching everything he was doing. At the end of the day, the owner went back to the pool and put the crab back in. And day after day, he did exactly the same thing. In the morning, he'd go to wash his face, he'd pick up the crab, he'd stash the crab in his clothing so the crab could watch what was going on. And at the end of the day, he'd go back and he'd put the crab back in the pool. Now, in that field, there wasn't just a crab and a bunch of workers and the owner. There was also a pair of crows and a snake. The crow wife said one day to her husband, I've got a desire. I've got a desire for the eyes of that Brahmin, that master of the field. The crow husband said, well, OK, what, what do you want me to do about it? The crow wife said, ah, well, there's that snake in this field, isn't there? Why don't you... Get in that snake's good books and ask the snake to do you a favour. Go and bite the Brahmin and once he's bitten, then I can come up and peck his eyes out and eat them. The crow husband said, fine, if I must. And he went off to go and try and impress the snake. Time went by. Crops grew up. The crab grew big and the crow grew into the good books of the snake. And finally, the crow persuaded the snake to bite that Brahmin master. That morning, the Brahmin, the, the master of the field, went to the pool to pick up the crab. And just then, the snake rushed at him and bit him in the thigh. The Brahmin fell to the floor, and the crab tumbled out of his place onto the ground. The crow rushed up ready quickly to peck the eyes out, almost as if it had been waiting for this exact moment, almost as if it knew what was about to happen. The crab saw through it. He worked out what had happened. He clamped his pincer around the crow's neck. The crow called out to the snake, help me, help me. The snake came rushing to his friend. The crab took his other pincer and he grabbed the snake around the neck. I suppose... Snakes are all neck, but he grabbed the snake around uh, 
the bit just below the head so he couldn't bite him. And he explained to them that this man who you just bitten, who just tried to peck the eyes out of, this man had been excessively kind to the crab. The crab said, if he dies, my grief is full. Serpent, he and I are one. Seeing I am grown so great, all would kill me willingly, fat and sweet and delicate as I am. The snake duly sucked the poison out of the man he'd just bitten. And then the crab crashed both the snake's head and also the crow's head. The man was saved and the friendship between the crab and the master of the field was greater than ever. So we've managed to purchase a bit of land. But hold on, before you start farming, wait up a bit. Let's hear about the legal responsibilities. Let's talk about tax, baby. The tax rate said to be one-sixth. That's a pretty stable tax rate. By the way, that's the tax rate whether you're buying land for secular purposes or for religious purposes. If you're a monk and you buy land, you have to pay one-sixth tax rate. You don't pay in grain, you pay in religious merit. So we're going to be paying one-sixth of grain. Actually, though, it's quite a lot more complicated than that. One-sixth is just the base rate. There's more than one tax. There are loads of them. And the complicated tax system started all the way back in Marian times, way back in series one. Back then, there were eight whole taxes, eight different taxes on agriculture. The Morian state was a big centralised state. It was guzzling taxes. And the tax rate with all of these successive taxes rose as high as maybe 50%. Now, since then, the taxes had fallen a bit. The current empire, the Gupta empire, it wasn't so unwieldy and expensive because it wasn't so centralised. The Gupta Empire was doing less for you than the Mauryan Empire, and so it cost you less in taxes. Actually, though, the tax code had just got more complicated. By the end of the Gupta era, there were 18 types of tax on agriculture. Now, some of those taxes won't apply to us if we bought our own land, for example, the tax on sharecroppers. But there are taxes on on ploughing, taxes on threshing, taxes on auspicious days, stuff like that. And we're going to have to navigate all of them. Ouch. Why do we have to pay the king all this money? Well, for one thing, technically the land belongs to him. Strictly speaking, we're just tenants on this land and the land is the king's. There's an old adage from one of the law books, Manuscripti. The field belongs to whoever first removed the weeds, and the deer belongs to whoever first wounded him. Finders keepers, losers weepers. John Locke would later come up with pretty much exactly the same principle to justify American colonists taking all the land away from Native Americans. That's a story for another podcast. But that principle, that whoever does the work keeps the land, keeps keeps the deer... That principle didn't apply anymore in the Gupta era. The king was the owner. But he was only the owner in a very removed technical sense. For example, if you wanted to buy land, you needed permission of the king's officer, but you also needed permission of the local villagers, the local council. And if you were buying wasteland, land that was previously unowned, 
technically you'd be buying it from the king, but he would only get one-sixth of the cost of the land. The remaining five-sixths, that will go to the local village. And when the king gave away the land or when he bought it from him, he can just go up and claim the land back. Perhaps he got the land back if there was no one left to inherit it, or if the owner committed some sort of criminal offence, but it wasn't his in the sense that he could just use it as and when he wanted it. In fact, in ancient India, the king was pretty much like the queen of modern England. Technically, the queen of England owns all of the land in England and Wales and the Channel Islands. That's what the law says. But it's not like she can come around any old house and treat it as if it's her living room. Well, not legally anyway. So the main reason you had to pay the king your tax wasn't because you were his tenant, although you were in some sort of technical legal sense. You paid him tax because he did things for you. First and foremost, he protected you by running the army, guarding the borders, making sure nobody invaded. But he also did more agricultural things for you. For one thing, the king often supplied irrigation. Wells, canals, dams, tanks. Dikes to protect water from flooding fields. Dikes to keep water from making the fields too wet. Irrigation had been the centre of Indian economic life for as long as anyone could remember. It's even mentioned in the Rig Veda, the oldest document of all. Karl Marx calls India a hydrological civilization, And this idea that India is based on irrigation was picked up by Western historians of a certain sort in the early 20th century. Here's looking at you, Rick Vogel. Now, there's an overwhelming amount wrong with what all of these historians said. They said things like the irrigation system was why ancient India was so dictatorial. Now, that's just nonsense, I think. But this emphasis on irrigation, this focus on getting water to the right place, that's right. That's part of ancient Indian life. Irrigation work wasn't always done by the king, but he would finance some of the big projects. It wasn't just irrigation that the king provided you with, he also was there when things didn't go to plan. Suppose one year the rain fell hard. The rain could fall so hard, the ancient Indians tell us, that it would wash the seeds right off the fields. In fact, one year during the Guptas era, there was so much rain that a great dam burst. Now in ancient India, at least in South India and presumably also in the north, when a dam burst, someone would go and beat a drum loudly exactly at the source of the breach. And all the villagers would drop whatever they were doing when they heard the drum and run towards the sound of the drum to try and fix the dam. Well, if they used a drum to try and fix this dam, it didn't work. This time, the villagers couldn't manage to prevent the breach and the dam burst wide open. The waters rushed through, the crops were washed away, and there was a famine. But the emperor, Emperor Skandagupta, he stepped in. He provided relief for the people, and he paid to have the dam repaired. Now, disaster could also strike for the opposite reason, of course. Too much rain, and your crops are ruined. Too little rain, and your crops fail. More famine. Once again, the emperor would step in. Skandagupta says in his own inscription that he is the helper of the poor. The king 
is almost expected to step in. And that's because there's this recurring thought at the back of a few of the inscriptions and the stories that kings are to blame when this sort of disaster strikes, and therefore it's the king's job to fix it. In fact, in that old manual of statecraft, the Artashastra, the king is told to provide for his people whenever this sort of disaster strikes. He is to give them seeds, and he is to construct new roads. And he should do this from his own personal wealth if necessary. And if he runs out of money, he should go and borrow from friendly kings. So there is this tremendous expectation that the king is going to be there for you when this great natural disaster strikes. You're getting something in return for all that tax money you pay to him. A little touch of security. Okay, so we've bought the land, we understand the taxes, let's get over all of this paperwork already and get down to our new farm. What will it look like? Well, it won't be right next to the village. There's a space of pasture land around the village for the length of 100 bows. 200 bows for a town, 300 bows for a city. A bow is around six foot long, maybe a bit more, historians don't really know. So we can start looking for our field from a couple of hundred metres from the village. Now, probably all the fields nearest the village were bought up long ago, and ours is further away. As we travel along the road away from the village, we see that the fields next to the road are fenced off from it. And the fence will be really quite tall and thick. The rules say that the, the fence has to be taller than a camel can look over and thicker than a boar can push through. That's pretty tall and pretty thick. The idea is that horses and cows can't get past it, basically. If our field isn't right next to the road, though, then it won't have this huge fence. It'll probably only be separated from other fields by a small fence. There it is. That strip of land that the council marked out for us. And now you can see that the fence isn't really a fence at all. It's just a little ridge of earth separating our land from other people's. You can easily step over it. We're on our farm at last. Now, if the time is right, we should think about beginning to plough. When exactly that time is depends on where you are in India. In much of India, there are two crops a year. There's a summer crop, probably rice or wheat or barley, depending where you are in India. And then there's a winter crop, which is more likely to be beans or pulses or vegetables, something that grows faster. The winter season is only three or four months long and the summer season is about six months long. We could plant winter rice if we wanted, but that would be cheaper rice and considered lower, lower quality. We wouldn't, we wouldn't get a good investment on it. Actually, though, our farm is in Magda and Magda is fertile. It's a place where the crops just seem to pop out of the ground. So we should plan to have three harvests a year, summer, autumn and winter. Rice is going to be our staple, though a bit of wheat and barley are probably dashed around the countryside too. The day that we should start ploughing, actually that's not up to us. That's chosen by the king with his advisers. They'll choose a day, and then on the right day, they'll gather up some of the great and the good from around the empire, the bigwigs. They'll give them all brand new clothes, and they'll, they'll tell them to come to the palace. 
So all these bigwigs will come wearing their new clothes, wearing garlands of flowers, staining up the new clothes. And they'll gather together at the palace and there they'll decorate some oxen and plough that have been put there. They'll, they'll paint them with silver and the king's plough will be decorated with gold. Actually, it's even said that the plough head of the king's plough will be made of gold, the bit that cuts into the earth. But that seems silly. Right? Gold just isn't hard enough to cut into the earth. It'll quickly be kind of torn away. Maybe it was just painted on. Anyway, the king kicks off the ritual by running his plough up and down the land a few times. And then all the bigwigs grab a silver plough and they do the same thing. Ploughing season has begun. We should get down to ploughing too. We'll need to get a plough. The local village might be able to lend us one. There might be a collective there sharing tools. Or we might bandy together with two or three farmers from the neighbouring fields, agreeing to share the risks and the profits, so that if one of our fields fails, the others will help them out financially. We might also share tools and oxen with them. The standard plough consists in a, a beam, and then there's the crossbar, which is tied to the beam by a rope, and that's pulled on by the oxen. There are a few other bits, but you don't need to know. It's pretty simple stuff. According to the law books, the number of oxen we have depends on what varna, what, what caste we are. If we're Brahmins, we should have 16 oxen. If we're Kshatriyas, we should have 12 oxen. If we're Vaishyas, we should have 8. If we're Sudras, we should have 4. If we're outcasts, then we only get 2. Now, in reality, pretty much everyone only used 2 oxen. It's enough to draw, and any more than two oxen is frankly a little bit of a hassle. The plough head, the bit that cuts the earth, that's probably made of iron. There are rumours of people using rhino skin, which is almost as tough as iron, but mostly you'll be using iron. And the plough head's about six inches by three inches. That's not actually particularly big for a plough head. This is a plough that's not going to run too deep. As a result, we're going to need to run over the same strip of ground two, maybe three times to make sure that the ground is good and loose and we've penetrated far enough. And then after that, we're going to go over the same ground manually, spade in hand, clumping, uh, sorry, breaking up any of the clumps that we find. Once we've done the ploughing, it's time to plant. Now, I don't want to do anything too fancy for the first year on the farm, we're just beginners after all, so let's plant some sugarcane. Sugarcane grows pretty strong, usually anyway. For sugarcane, to plant it, we'll need a, a knot of the cane and a bit of the cane around it. So a section of cane, a little less than a foot long. We, we dig a trench, we plant it in the trench, then we cover it up. The ancient texts then tell us to water the field just after we planted Although nowadays I think when you're planting sugarcane you water the field before you plant it. But in any case, we should be watering at some point around planting period. Now, watering is considered a tremendously important part of the ancient Indian farmer's job. You have to be good at it. Watering can come from a few different sources. So there might be a simple sluice from a nearby dike. We can open up the sluice and let the water flood the farrows of the field. Or, or we might take water from a, a nearby well using ropes. We could use our own hands or use oxen. Or there might be a sort of pulley system with a, a pole, a weight on one end and a water basket made lever on the other. And we could just pull on that basic pulley system. If we're really lucky, there'll be a water wheel from a nearby stream. 
doesn't matter. Because all the ancient texts agree that the crucial thing is to make sure that the water leaves the field quickly. You can't let water just sit there in your field. That's one of your key responsibilities as a farmer. Okay, with the field ploughed and watered, it's time to settle down and keep watch. As the cane grows, we might build a little bit of a platform in the centre of the field to look out over it. Because we need to see if any pests come, any birds, any mice. And if we see a bird or a mouse, we're going to run after them as soon as we can. This is pretty crucial part of ancient Indian farming, and a surprisingly big part of ancient Indian thought and literature. There are even hymns in the oldest Brahminical texts about chasing away pests. Forth from the hall, the bold, the sharp, the greedy one, the single-voiced, Sadhavanas, and all progeny of Chanda we exterminate. We drive you forth from cattle shed, from axle, from within the wane. Ye daughters of Magundi, we frighten and chase you from our homes. I have gone round their homes as runs a fleet foot racer round the post, and in all races conquered you. Vanish, Sardarvanas, and be gone. And I think at this stage we can really start to enjoy the farm, especially with sugarcane. If you've never been to a sugarcane plantation, and if you get the chance, don't hesitate for a moment. Because when the cane grows thick and tall, set your alarm early. Wake up before the sun and get out in the fields. And then you smell it. As the sun rises and it hits the cane and starts to melt the dew from the sides of it, the sugar in the air, full, wholesome, it's almost like a sweet treat in a meal with every breath. It's absolutely wonderful. People often associate sugar plantations with bad smelling. Uh, the processing factories, they don't smell that great. But dawn amongst the cane fields, that's absolute magic. And actually, it's a magic that the ancients sung about too. There are poems which talk about husbands working the fields whilst their wives sit in the shade of the cane, watching over the rice paddy. Trust me, if you get a chance, don't miss out. In fact, there are plenty of tales about waiting around, guarding the crops. That seems to be the starting place for a hundred adventures. We've already had some stories that started guarding crops. Remember the, the Brahmin on the platform who was grumpy when he got off, but kind when he got on it? And then there's the tale of the King of the Parrots. This tale starts in a farm just to the east of Rajagriha and a bit north. For all I know, it was the same farm as the last story in this episode. It was a farm of a thousand acres, and it was owned by a Brahmin man. And the Brahmin man decided to split it up. Half of the, of the farm he gave away to sharecroppers, and the other half he worked himself. And after he'd ploughed it, along with him and his hired men, he hired a man to watch over the field as the crop grew. The man built a hut on the farm and he lived there day and night guarding the crop. Now, just on the edge of the farm was a wood, a wood of cotton trees. And amongst the cotton lived a bunch of parrots. And one of them, bigger, taller, with a huge beak, was king of the parrots. And the parrots 
when the paddies started to grow, they'd fly down into the field and they'd start to pick off great clumps of rice. The hired man emerged from the hut. He saw the parrots there. He ran about trying to scare them off, shouting and flapping, but there were too many of them. They covered the whole field. The parrots had their fill and they left. The next morning they were back and the king of the parrots was with them. They started eating. The hired man emerged from the hut, tried to chase them away, but there were too many. He noticed that this great big parrot, the king parrot, was there. And he noticed that the king parrot stayed longer. He ate more rice. In fact, where the other parrots just ate a bit of rice and they got full up and they left, the king parrot filled his entire beak until it was dripping with grain. And then he flew off back to his wood. The hired man was worried. He thought to himself, that Brahmin, the chap who hired me, he's going to charge me for all of this lost rice. And pretty soon there's going to be no rice left because those parrots are going to eat all of it. So the hired man went to his master, took a bit of rice just to sweeten him up. And he said, the crop's looking good this year, but it's being eaten by these parrots. Explained to him about this one huge kingly looking parrot and how he would eat the most. And not only that, he would stuff his entire beak until it was spilling over with grain. Well, the Brahmin told him to try and trap this one great parrot. So that night, the hired man laid a trap. The next day, the parrots, together with the parrot king, came back. And the parrot king just happened to place his foot right in the trap. It tightened round his foot and it caught him fast. The parrot king knew immediately that he was stuck, but he didn't make a sound. He thought to himself, let all of the other parrots eat. Don't scare them off. Let them eat and let them leave. So they ate and they left and they flew off until he was all alone. The hired man sneaked out of his hut and he saw the parrot king there. He thought, got him. He grabbed the parrot king and he snuck him away to the Brahmin master. The Brahmin master started talking to the parrot king. Parrots can talk, so it kind of makes sense. The Brahmin master asked him, why is it that you don't just eat from the field? Why do you fill up your entire beak until it's spilling over with grain? Where, where does all that extra grain go? The parrot king told him, I've got these two old parents. They're too infirm to go out and get grain for themselves, but I can't bear them to see them suffer, so I give them some grain. And then I've got these young chicks that I have to look after. The Brahmin was moved tremendously. He'd never heard a parrot say something with such virtue. In fact, he'd never heard a parrot say anything so self-possessed. The Brahmin took off the noose from around the parrot's leg. He gave him corn and, and sugar water, and he offered him all of the 1,000 acres of the farm. The parrot king refused. He said, no, I'll, I'll, thank you very much, but I will take eight acres. That's all I need to feed me and my parents and my chicks. So the Brahmin and the Parrot King went out to the field and they set out boundary stones for eight acres. The Parrot King flew off with the good news to his family.
Before we leave the farm, we should consider getting into the animal business too. You can go for sheep or goats, buffalo, oxen. But I think we could also go for cattle. That's the main thing. Now, technically, we have to be from the Vaishya caste to own cattle. The cattle were given to the Vaishya according to some texts, and they must never be kept by other castes. In practice, though, all across ancient India, all sorts of people own cattle, from kings to really quite poor people, and people from all varnas, people from all castes. In fact, it's not altogether clear that Vaishya people own cattle more often than any other people. So, we could buy some cows. And then we should hire a cow herd. The cow herd will follow the cows around and keep them out of trouble. The cow herd must even put his life on the line to stop a cow getting into trouble. If a cow falls down into a ditch or if they are bitten by a snake, the cow herd owes us a cow. But if he tries to save them from other fates and he fails, then it's on us. Cow herding seems like a tough job, but actually it's paid pretty darn well. A cow herd's going to get one cow for every hundred cows he looks after per year. And he gets milk from the cows every eighth day. That's really quite a decent wage. If we have some young bulls, well, if they turn into good enough bulls, we can turn them loose. If one of them has elegant shoulders, a soft and straight tail, sharp horns, shiny eyes, 18 healthy teeth then he can be set free to roam the countryside to breed. And we won't be responsible if our roaming bull does any damage. Other than that, though, we've got to be pretty careful about where animals go. For example, if our sheep cross into a neighbour's field and trample the corn, we owe them half a musha of grain. Now, a musha must presumably be quite a big unit in ancient times. Nowadays, half a musha is still a unit in use, although it's pretty archaic. It only amounts to a few grains. In ancient times, we don't know how much it amounted to, but probably a hundred times that or more. So if your sheep go into a neighbouring field and destroy it, half a musher. If a cow goes into a neighbour's field, one musher. If it's a buffalo, that's going to cost us two whole musher. If it's an elephant or a horse, then the fine is nothing at all. Elephants and horses are allowed to go pretty much where they please. Now, we've still got an awful lot to learn. There's a lot more that can be said in ancient India about animal husbandry, about crop rotation. But we've made a start. We've become farmers. And that is a glorious thing to be. As an ancient Buddhist text put it, a farmer is a man with a plough on one shoulder, an ox goad in hand, dishevelled hair, hemp clothing and feet spattered with mud. A romantic picture. It's a picture, though, with a couple of problems. For one thing, plenty of farmers were women too. Women were doing the hard work alongside the men. They didn't just get the easy jobs. They were doing the transplanting of rice. They were doing the digging in the fields for roots and so forth and so on. For another thing, though, there's a persistent thought that farming isn't really a reputable job. And especially, it's not a suitable job for those upper caste chaps. Now here, the law books are pretty confusing. They seem to say mostly that both that 
farming's great and farmers are salt of the earth people and also that farmers are low rascals. Take the most famous law book of all, the Manu Smriti. This says that some people think that farming is a virtuous profession and good people think it's blameworthy. Other law books count farming as a great sin, at least if it's a Brahmin doing it. Look, the reality was in ancient India that all sorts of people farmed. And in fact, it seems that Brahmins farmed as much, if not more, than other people. How can we square the rules with that reality? Well, we can just begin to make sense of it if we think about the different jobs you might do on a farm. If you work on a farm, you're a farmer, but you might actually be doing quite different things under that title. For example, cutting down the harvest with a sickle, now that's probably a job that is fine for everyone, according to the law books. But ploughing the field? Ploughing the field in the ancient Indian world could be quite a bad thing. Because when you plough the field, you are hurting the earth, you're ripping it open. And you can also hurt creatures in the earth, you can cut apart earthworms. And that's something that can be a big no-no for those focused especially on religious purity. So that's something that's going to be more likely to be forbidden if you're upper caste, more likely to be left to lower castes. Now, this partition of different farming roles to different varnas, that seems to resolve the tension between the rules and the reality just a little bit. But even then, I wouldn't bet the farm that people followed those rules too closely. Every week we read something from the original sources. Now we've had a couple of Buddhist tales this week already, so let's steer clear of the Jatakas and go for something else. So here it is from the Ocean of Stories collection, Why a Farmer is Wiser Than an Ascetic. It goes like this. Long ago, there lived in the Deccan, in a city called Gokana, a king named Shrutasena. He was the ornament of his race and possessed of learning. And this king, though his prosperity was complete, had yet one source of sorrow, that as yet he had not yet obtained a wife who was a suitable match for him. Once on a time, the king, while brooding over that sorrow, began to talk about it, and was thus addressed by a Brahmin. I have seen two wonders, O king, and I will describe them to you. Listen. Having gone on a pilgrimage to all the sacred bathing places, I reached that Panchatirati in which five Apsaras were reduced to the condition of crocodiles by the curse of a holy sage. They were rescued from it by Arjuna, who had come there while going round the holy spots. There I bathed in the blessed water, which possesses the power of enabling those men who bathe in it and fast for five nights to become followers of Narayana. While I was departing, I beheld a cultivator in the middle of a field, who had furrowed the arrow earth with his plough, singing. The cultivator was asked about the road by a certain wandering hermit who had come that way. But the cultivator didn't hear what the hermit said, being wholly occupied with his song. Then the hermit was angry with that cultivator and began to talk in a distracted manner. The cultivator, stopping his song, said to him, Alas, though you are a hermit, you will not learn even a fraction of virtue. 
even I, though a fool, have discovered what is the highest essence of virtue. When he heard that, the hermit asked him out of curiosity, What have you discovered? And the cultivator answered him, Sit here in the shade and listen while I tell you a tale. It was the tale of the three Brahmin brothers. In this land there were three Brahmin brothers, Brahmadatta, Somadatta and Vishvadatta. They were of holy deeds. Of these three brothers, the eldest two possessed wives. The youngest was unmarried, and he remained as their servant without being angry. He obeyed their orders, along with me, for I was their ploughman. And those elder brothers thought that the younger brother was soft and devoid of intellect, good, not swerving from the right path, simple, unenterprising. Then, once on a time, the youngest brother was solicited by his two brothers' wives, who fell in love with him, but he rejected their advances as if each of them had been his mother. Then they both of them went and said falsely to their own husbands, that younger brother of yours, he makes love to us in secret. This speech made those two elder brothers cherish anger against him in their hearts. For men, bewildered by the speeches of wicked women, do not know the difference between truth and falsehood. Then those brothers said once on a time to their younger brother, go and level that anthill in the middle of the field. He said, I will. And he went proceeded to dig up the anthill with his spade. Though I said to him, don't do it, a venomous snake lives there. He heard what he said, what I said, but despite that he continued to dig at the anthill, exclaiming, let what will happen, happen. For he would not disobey the order of his two elder brothers, even though they wished him ill. While he was digging, he found a pitcher filled with gold, and not a venomous snake. For virtue is an auxiliary to the good. So he took that picture and he gave it all to his elder brothers out of his constant affection for them, though I tried to dissuade him. But they sent assassins, hiring them with a portion of that gold, and had his hands and feet cut off in, in, in their desire to seize his wealth. But he was still free from anger, and in spite of that treatment did not wax wrath on his brothers, and on account of that virtue of his, his hands and feet grew back again. After beholding that, I renounced from that time all anger. But you, though you are a hermit, have not even renounced anger now. The man who is free from anger has gained heaven. Behold now a proof of this. After saying this, the farmer left his body and ascended to heaven. And that's it for this week. Quick note, apologies that the episodes have been a little bit slow. I've been trying to move continent. It's taken a little bit of my time. I've run just a little bit behind the schedule. But the normal weekly service should be restored pretty soon. Hope you've been enjoying the episodes. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snehill Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. Details are in the description. Have a great week. Take care.